Book One, Chapter Two of My Own Story by Emmeline Pankhurst. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book One, The Making of a Militant. Chapter Two. In eighteen eighty-five, a year after the failure of the Third Women's Suffrage Bill, my husband, Doctor Pankhurst, stood as the Liberal candidate for Parliament in Rotherline, a Riverside constituency of London. I went through the campaign with him, speaking and canvassing to the best of my ability. Dr. Pankhurst was a popular candidate, and unquestionably would have been returned but for the opposition of the Home Rulers. Parnell was in command, and his settled policy was opposition to all government candidates. So, in spite of the fact that Dr. Pankhurst was a staunch upholder of Home Rule, the Parnell forces were solidly opposed to him, and he was defeated. I remember expressing considerable indignation, but my husband pointed out to me that Parnell's policy was absolutely right. With his small party, he could never hope to win home rule from a hostile majority, but by constant obstruction he could in time wear out the government, and force it to surrender. That was a valuable political lesson, one that years later I was destined to put into practice. The following year found us living in London, and, as usual, interesting ourselves with labour matters and other social movements. This year was memorable for a great strike of women working in the Bryant and May match factories. I threw myself into this strike with enthusiasm, working with the girls and with some women of prominence, among these the celebrated Mrs. Annie Besant. The strike was a successful one the girls winning substantial improvements in their working conditions. It was a time of tremendous unrest, of labour agitations, of strikes and lockouts. It was a time also when a most stupid reactionary spirit seemed to take possession of the government and the authorities. The Salvation Army, the Socialists, the Trade Unionists, in fact all bodies holding outdoor meetings, were made special objects of attack. As a protest against this policy, a Lawned Liberty League was formed in London, and an immense free speech meeting was held in Trafalgar Square, John Burns and Cunningham Graham being the principal speakers. I was present at this meeting, which resulted in a bloody riot between the police and the populace. The Trafalgar Square riot is historic, and to it Mr. John Burns owes, in large part, his subsequent rise to political eminence. Both John Burns and Cunningham Graham served prison sentences for the part they played in the riot, but they gained fame, and they did much to establish the right of free speech for English men. English women are still contending for that right. In 1890 my last child was born in London. I now had a family of five young children, and for a time I was less active in public work. On the retirement of Mrs. Annie Besant from the London School Board, I had been asked to stand as a candidate for the vacancy. But although I should have enjoyed the work, I decided not to accept this invitation. The next year, however, a new suffrage association, the Women's Franchise League, was formed, and I felt it my duty to become affiliated with it. The League was preparing a new suffrage bill, the provisions of which I could not possibly approve and I joined with old friends, among whom were Mrs. Jacob Bright, Mrs. Wollstenholme Elmy, 
who was a member of the London School Board, and Mrs. Stanton Blatch, then resident in England, in an effort to substitute the original bill drafted by Dr. Pankhurst. As a matter of fact, neither of the bills was introduced into Parliament that year. Mr., now Lord, Haldane, who had the measure in charge, introduced one of his own drafting. It was a truly startling bill, royally inclusive in its terms. It not only enfranchised all women, married and unmarried, of the householding classes, but it made them eligible to all offices under the Crown. The bill was never taken seriously by the government, and indeed it was never intended that it should be, as we were later made to understand. I remember going with Mrs. Stanton Blatch to the law courts to see Mr. Haldane, and to protest against the introduction of a measure that had not the remotest chance of passing. "'All, that bill,' said Haldane, "'is for the future.' All their women's suffrage bills are intended for the future, a future so remote as to be imperceptible. We were beginning to understand this even in 1891. However, as long as there was a bill, we determined to support it. Accordingly, we canvassed the members, distributed a great deal of literature, and organized and addressed meetings. We not only made speeches ourselves, but we induced friendly members of Parliament to go on our platforms. One of these meetings, held in an East End Radical Club, was addressed by Mr. Haldane and a young man who accompanied him. This young man, Sir Edward Grey, then in the beginning of his career, made an eloquent plea for woman's suffrage. That Sir Edward Grey should, later in life, become a bitter foe of woman's suffrage need astonish no one. I have known many young Englishmen who began their political life as suffrage speakers, and who later became anti-suffragists or traitorous friends of the cause. These young and aspiring statesmen have to attract attention in some fashion, and the espousal of advanced causes, such as labour or women's suffrage, seems an easy way to accomplish that end. Well, our speeches and our agitation did nothing at all to assist Mr. Haldane's impossible bill. It never advanced beyond the first reading. Our London residence came to an end in 1893. In that year we returned to our Manchester home, and I again took up the work of the Suffrage Society. At my suggestion, the members began to organise their first out-of-door meetings, and we continued these until we succeeded in working up a great meeting that filled Free Trade Hall, and overflowed into and crowded a smaller hall near at hand. This marked the beginning of a campaign of propaganda among working people, an object which I had long desired to bring about. And now began a new, and, as I look back on it, an absorbingly interesting stage of my career. I have told how our leaders in the Liberal Party had advised the women to prove their fitness for the parliamentary franchise by serving in municipal offices, especially the unsalaried offices. A large number of women had availed themselves of this advice, and were serving on boards of guardians, on school boards, and in other capacities. My children now being old enough for me to leave them with competent nurses, I was free to join these ranks. A year after my return to Manchester, I became a candidate for the Board of Poor Law Guardians. Several weeks before, I had contested unsuccessfully for a place on the school board. This time, however, I was elected, heading the poll by a very large majority. 
For the benefit of American readers, I shall explain something of the operation of our English poor law. The duty of the law is to administer an act of Queen Elizabeth, one of the greatest reforms effected by that wise and humane monarch. When Elizabeth came to the throne, she found England, the merry England of contemporary poets, in a state of appalling poverty. Hordes of people were literally starving to death, in wretched hovels, in the streets, and at the very gates of the palace. The cause of all this misery was the religious reformation under Henry the Eighth, and the secession from Rome of the English church. King Henry, it is known, seized all the church lands, the abbeys and the convents, and gave them as rewards to those nobles and favourites who had supported his policies. But in taking over the church's property, the Protestant nobles by no means assumed the church's ancient responsibilities of lodging wayfarers, giving alms, nursing the sick, educating youths, and caring for the young and the superannuated. When the monks and the nuns were turned out of their convents, those duties devolved on no one. The result, after the brief reign of Edward VI, and the bloody one of Queen Mary, was the social anarchy inherited by Elizabeth. This great queen and great woman, perceiving that the responsibility for the poor and the helpless frightfully rests on the community, caused an act to be passed, creating in the parishes public bodies to deal with local conditions of poverty. The Board of Poor Law Guardians disperses for the poor the money coming from the poor rates, taxes, and some additional monies allowed by the local government board, the president of which is a cabinet minister. Mr. John Burns is the present incumbent of the office. The Board of Guardians has control of the institution we call the workhouse. You have, I believe, almshouses, or poorhouses, but they are not quite so extensive as our workhouses, which are all kinds of institutions in one. We had in my workhouse a hospital with nine hundred beds, a school with several hundred children, a farm and many workshops. When I came into office, I found that the law in our district, Trollton, was being very harshly administered. The old board had been made up of the kind of men who are known as rate-savers. They were guardians not of the poor, but of the rates, and, as I soon discovered, not very astute guardians even of money. For instance, although the inmates were being very poorly fed, a frightful waste of food was apparent. Each inmate was given each day a certain weight of food, and bread formed so much of the ration that hardly anyone consumed all of his portion. In the farm department, pigs were kept on purpose to consume this surplus of bread, and as pigs do not thrive on a solid diet of stale bread, the animals fetched in the market a much lower price than properly fed farm pigs. I suggested that instead of giving a solid weight of bread in one lump, the loaf be cut in slices and buttered with margarine, each person being allowed all that he cared to eat. The rest of the board objected, saying that our poor charges were very jealous of their rights, and would suspect in such an innovation an attempt to deprive them of a part of their ration. This was easily overcome by the suggestion that we consult the inmates before we made the change. Of course the poor people consented, and with the bread that we saved we made puddings with milk and currants, to be fed to the old people of the workhouse. These old folks I found sitting on backless forms, or benches. They had no privacy, 
no possessions, not even a locker. The old women were without pockets in their gowns, so they were obliged to keep any poor little treasures they had in their bosoms. Soon after I took office we gave the old people comfortable Windsor chairs to sit in, and in a number of ways we managed to make their existence more endurable. These, after all, were minor benefits, but it does gratify me when I look back and remember what we were able to do for the children of the Manchester workhouse. The first time I went into the place I was horrified to see little girls seven and eight years old, on their knees, scrubbing the cold stones of the long corridors. These little girls were clad, summer and winter, in thin cotton frocks, low in the neck and short-sleeved. At night they wore nothing at all, night dresses being considered too good for paupers. The fact that bronchitis was epidemic among them most of the time had not suggested to the guardians any change in the fashion of their clothes. There was a school for the children, but the teaching was of the poorest order. They were forlorn enough, these poor innocents, when I first met them. In five years' time we had changed the face of the earth for them. We had bought land in the country, and had built a cottage system home for the children, and we had established for them a modern school with trained teachers. We had even secured for them a gymnasium and a swimming bath. I may say that I was on the building committee of the board, the only woman member. Whatever may be urged against the English poor law system, I maintain that under it no stigma of pauperism need be applied to workhouse children. If they are treated like paupers, of course they will be paupers, and they will grow up paupers, permanent burdens on society. But if they are regarded merely as children under the guardianship of the state, they assume quite another character. Rich children are not pauperized by being sent to one or another of the free public schools with which England is blessed. Yet a great many of those schools, now exclusively used for the education of upper-middle-class boys, were founded by legacies left to educate the poor, girls as well as boys. The English poor law, properly administered, ought to give back to the children of the destitute what the upper classes have taken from them a good education on a self-respecting basis. The trouble is, as I soon perceived after taking office, the law cannot, in existing circumstances, do all the work, even for children, that it was intended to do. We shall have to have new laws, and it soon became apparent to me that we can never hope to get them until women have the vote. During the time I served on the board, and for years since then, Women guardians all over the country have striven in vain to have the law reformed in order to ameliorate conditions which break the hearts of women to see, but which apparently affect men very little. I have spoken of the little girls I found scrubbing the workhouse floors. There were others at the hateful labour who aroused my keenest pity. I found that there were pregnant women in that workhouse, scrubbing floors, doing the hardest kind of work almost until their babies came into the world. Many of them were unmarried women, very, very young, mere girls. These poor mothers were allowed to stay in the hospital after confinement, for a short two weeks. Then they had to make a choice of staying in the workhouse and earning their living by scrubbing and other work, in which case they were separated from their babies, or of taking their discharges. They could stay and be paupers, or they could leave, 
leave with a two-weeks-old baby in their arms, without hope, without home, without money, without anywhere to go. What became of those girls, and what became of their hapless infants? That question was at the basis of the women guardians' demand for a reform of one part of the poor law. That section deals with the little children who are boarded out, not by the workhouse, but by the parents, that parent being almost always the mother. It is from that class of workhouse mothers, mostly young servant girls, which thoughtless people say all working girls ought to be. It is from that class, more than from any other, that cases of illegitimacy come. Those poor little servant girls, who can get out perhaps only in the evening, whose minds are not very cultivated, and who find all the sentiment of their lives in cheap novelettes, fall an easy prey to those who have designs against them. These are the people by whom the babies are mostly put out to nurse, and the mothers have to pay for their keep. Of course the babies are very badly protected. The poor law guardians are supposed to protect them by appointing inspectors to visit the homes where the babies are boarded. But, under the law, if a man who ruins a girl pays down a lump sum of twenty pounds, less than a hundred dollars, the boarding home is immune from inspection. As long as a baby farmer takes only one child at a time, the twenty pounds being paid, the inspectors cannot inspect the house. Of course the babies die with hideous promptness, often long before the twenty pounds have been spent, and then the baby farmers are free to solicit another victim. For years, as I have said, women have tried in vain to get that one small reform of the poor law, to reach and protect all illegitimate children, and to make it impossible for any rich scoundrel to escape future liability for his child, because of the lump sum he has paid down. Over and over again it has been tried, but it has always failed, because the ones who really care about the thing are mere women. I thought I had been a suffragist before I became a poor law guardian, but now I began to think about the vote in women's hands, not only as a right, but as a desperate necessity. These poor, unprotected mothers and their babies, I am sure, were potent factors in my education as a militant. In fact, all the women I came in contact with in the workhouse contributed to that education. Very soon after I went on the board, I saw that the class of old women who came into the workhouse were in many ways superior to the kind of old men who came into the workhouse. One could not help noticing it. They were, to begin with, more industrious. In fact, it was quite touching to see their industry and patience. Old women, over sixty and seventy years of age, did most of the work of that place, most of the sewing, most of the things that kept the house clean and which supplied the inmates with clothing. I found that the old men were different. One could not get very much work out of them. They liked to stop in the oakum picking-room, where they were allowed to smoke, but as to real work, very little was done by our old men. I began to make inquiries about these old women. I found that the majority of them were not women who had been dissolute, who had been criminal, but women who had led perfectly respectable lives, either as wives and mothers, or as single women earning their own living. A great many were of the domestic servant class, who had not married, 
who had lost their employment and had reached a time of life when it was impossible to get more employment it was through no fault of their own but simply because they had never earned enough to save the average wage of working women in england is less than two dollars a week on this pittance it is difficult enough to keep alive and of course it is impossible to save every one who knows anything about conditions under which our working women live knows that few of them can ever hope to put by enough to keep them in old age besides the average working woman has to support others than herself how can she save some of our old women were married many of them i found were widows of skilled artisans who had had pensions from their unions but the pensions had died with the men these women who had given up the power to work for themselves and had devoted themselves to working for their husbands and children were left penniless there was nothing for them to do but to go into the workhouse many of them were widows of men who had served their country in the army or the navy the men had had pensions from the government but the pensions had died with them and so the women were in the workhouse we shall not in future i hope find so many respectable old women in english workhouses we have an old-age pension law now which allows old women as well as old men the sum of five shillings one dollar twenty a week hardly enough to live on but enough to enable the poor to keep their old fathers and mothers out of the workhouse without starving themselves or their children but when i was a poor law guardian there was simply nothing to do with a woman when her life of toil ceased except make a pauper of her i wish i had space to tell you of other tragedies of women i witnessed while i was on that board in our outer leaf department which exists chiefly for able-bodied poor and dependent persons i was brought into contact with widows who were struggling desperately to keep their homes and families together the law allowed these women relief of a certain very inadequate kind but for herself and one child it offered no relief except the workhouse even if the woman had a baby at her breast she was regarded under the law as an able-bodied man women we are told should stay at home and take care of their children i used to astound my men colleagues by saying to them when women have the vote they will see that mothers can stay at home and care for their children you men have made it impossible for these mothers to do that i am convinced that the enfranchised woman will find many ways in which to lessen at least the curse of poverty women have more practical ideas about relief and especially of prevention of dire poverty than men display i was struck with this whenever i attended the district conferences and the annual poor law union meetings in our discussions the women showed themselves much more capable much more resourceful than the men i remember two papers which i prepared and which caused considerable discussion one of these was on the duties of guardians in times of unemployment in which i pointed out that the government had one reserve of employment for men which could always be used we have on our northwest coast a constant washing away of the foreshore every once in a while the question of coast reclamation comes up for discussion but i had never heard any man suggest coast reclamation as a means of giving the unemployed relief in eighteen ninety eight i suffered an irreparable loss in the death of my husband 
His death occurred suddenly, and left me with the heavy responsibility of caring for a family of children, the eldest only seventeen years of age. I resigned my place on the Board of Guardians, and was almost immediately appointed to the salaried office of Registrar of Births and Deaths in Manchester. We have registrars of births, deaths, and marriages in England, but since the act establishing the last named contains the words male person, a woman may not be appointed a registrar of marriages. The head of this department of the government is the registrar-general, with offices at Somerset House, London, where all vital statistics are returned and all records filed. It was my duty as registrar of births and deaths to act as chief census officer of my district. I was obliged to receive all returns of births and deaths, record them, and send my books quarterly to the office of the Registrar-General. My district was in a working-class quarter, and on this account I instituted evening office hours twice a week. It was touching to observe how glad the women were to have a woman registrar to go to. They used to tell me their stories, dreadful stories some of them, and all of them pathetic with that patient and uncomplaining pathos of poverty. Even after my experience on the Board of Guardians, I was shocked to be reminded over and over again of the little respect there was in the world for women and children. I have had little girls of thirteen come to my office to register the births of their babies, illegitimate, of course. In many of these cases I found that the child's own father, or some near male relative, was responsible for her state. There was nothing that could be done in most cases. The age of consent in England is sixteen years, but a man can always claim that he thought the girl was over sixteen. During my term of office a very young mother of an illegitimate child exposed her baby and it died. The girl was tried for murder and was sentenced to death. This was afterwards commuted, it is true, but the unhappy child had the horrible experience of the trial and the sentence to be hanged by the neck until you are dead. The wretch who was, from the point of view of justice, the real murder of the baby, received no punishment at all. I needed only one more experience after this one, only one more contact with the life of my time and the position of women, to convince me that if civilization is to advance at all in the future, it must be through the help of women, women freed of their political shackles, women with full power to work their will in society. In 1900 I was asked to stand as a candidate for the Manchester School Board. The schools were then under the old law, and the school boards were very active bodies. They administered the Elementary Education Act, bought school sites, erected buildings, employed and paid teachers. The school code and the curriculum were framed by the Board of Education, which is part of the central government. Of course this was absurd. A body of men in London could not possibly realise all the needs of boys and girls in remote parts of England, but so it was. As a member of the school board, I very soon found that the teachers, working people of the higher grade, were in exactly the same position as the working people of the lower grades. That is, the men had all the advantage. Teachers had a representative in the school board councils. Of course that representative was a man-teacher, and equally, of course, he gave preference to the interests of the men-teachers. 
men teachers received much higher salaries than the women although many of the women in addition to their regular classwork had to teach sewing and domestic science into the bargain they received no extra pay for their extra work in spite of this added burden and in spite of the lower salaries received i found that the women cared a great deal more about their work and a great deal more about the children than the men it was a winter when there was a great deal of poverty and unemployment in manchester i found that the women teachers were spending their slender salaries to provide regular dinners for destitute children and were giving up their time to waiting on them and seeing that they were nourished they said to me quite simply you see the little things are too badly off to study their lessons we have to feed them before we can teach them well instead of seeing that women care more for schools and school children than men do and should therefore have more power in education the parliament of nineteen hundred actually passed a law which took education in england entirely out of the hands of women this law abolished the school board altogether and placed the administration of schools in the hands of the municipalities certain corporations had formerly made certain grants to technical education manchester had built a magnificent technical college and now the corporations had full control of both elementary and secondary education the law did indeed provide that the corporations should co-opt at least one woman on their education boards manchester co-opted four women and at the strong recommendation of the labour party i was one of the women chosen at their urgent solicitation i was appointed to the committee on technical instruction the one woman admitted to this committee i learned that the manchester technical college called the second best in europe spending thousands of pounds annually for technical training had practically no provision for training women even in classes where they might easily have been admitted bakery and confectionery classes and the like the girls were kept out because the men's trades unions objected to their being educated for such skilled work it was rapidly becoming clear to my mind that men regarded women as a servant class in the community and that women were going to remain in the servant class until they lifted themselves out of it i asked myself many times in those days what was to be done i had joined the labour party thinking that through its councils something vital might come some such demand for the women's enfranchisement that the politicians could not possibly ignore nothing came all these years my daughters had been growing up all their lives they had been interested in women's suffrage christabel and sylvia as little girls had cried to be taken to meetings they had helped in our drawing-room meetings in every way that children can help as they grew older we used to talk together about the suffrage and I was sometimes rather frightened by their youthful confidence in the prospect, which they considered certain, of the success of the movement. One day Christabel startled me with the remark, How long you women have been trying for the vote! For my part, I mean to get it. Was there, I reflected, any difference between trying for the vote and getting it? There is an old French proverb, If youth could know, if age could do. It occurred to me that if the older suffrage workers could in some way join hands with the young, unwearied and resourceful suffragists, the movement might wake up to new life and new possibilities. 
after that i and my daughters together sought a way to bring about that union of young and old which would find new methods blaze new trails at length we thought we had found a way end of book 1 chapter 2 recording by petra